Good morning. It's great to see you. If you have a Bible, turn it open to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we are continuing and actually finishing our series on uh, this Christ-like character of generosity. And so we are, uh, we, we're, we've been looking at how generosity is this, uh, this natural and appropriate response to the presence of God in our lives. And, and so we began looking at how, how and why we should be generous with our stuff, right? And, and what is involved in getting over the hurdles uh, involved in, in getting becoming generous with our stuff. And then last week we looked at our words as a resource, as, as this very powerful thing that creates and shapes reality. And so we looked at what generous words look like. And today we're going to finish off looking at what it means to be generous with our time. Uh, and that time is one of our greatest resources. Have you noticed that? And it is also one of these resources that we easily hoard for ourselves, but which God calls us to graciously and generously give. Now, it seems to me like most of us have a pretty messed up relationship with time, right? I mean, you're hearing one of two things usually from people. One is, I have no time, I am way too busy, right? Or you're hearing, I have so much time on my hands, right? Either one is a disproportionate relationship to the time. One hand, it's too busy. On the other hand, not busy enough. God calls us to rest and work. And, uh, I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody say, I have the perfect balance of rest and work in my life, right? (laughs) This is, right, you have, I guarantee you've never heard this from anyone. Or if they said it, they were lying, or it didn't last long. Usually. Sometimes we get there. Anyway, uh, time is one of these things that I think really causes us to sense our limitations. Time really uh, takes us to the edge of ourselves and we begin to realize our limitations. Um, like U2's song uh, on the wonderful Octune Baby Zoo Station, Time is a train, makes the future the past, leaves you standing in the station, your face pressed up against the glass. I mean, this is such a great articulation of how time makes us feel. It is zooming past and we are just grasping to catch up uh, with all the things that we've committed ourselves to. And so when we look at time as a resource to be generous with, it automatically makes us feel baggage, right? We feel guilty for not doing enough with our time or we feel uh, beleaguered because we've been doing too much with our time. And many of us go through life burdened in ways that are only amplified by a sense of a lack of time. And we wish that our burden wouldn't have come to us, and so we go to Tolkien and his character Gandalf, who tells us, yet so do all who live in such times. Yet it's not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time we have been given. We say, thanks, Bono. Thanks, Tolkien. These are great articulations of how time makes us feel. But... You didn't come here for Gandalf, and you didn't come here for Bono. You came here for Scripture, and so we're going to get to that. All right, so this really raises the central question of what should our relationship to time be, since it feels so messed up? What should our relationship to time be? And often what I find is at the center of the issue is that we are the center of our own time. It is, after all, my time, my schedule, my calendar, my occupation, my free time, so on and so forth. And the notion of generosity with time as a resource requires a whole other set of lenses with which we see time. 
especially if we're going to release time as a resource to steward for the common good rather than something to exploit for our own advancement. So, what does God have to say about time? First of all, God orders our time. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. After six days of creating, right? This is God speaking things into existence. He's ordering things. He's creating. And it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so you have a couple options for what might be going on here, right? Um, First of all, right from the very beginning, you get God setting a rhythm for time. Right? He, he orders time. Six days work, one day rest. Six days work, one day rest and worship. Okay, And so you, you might read this and think, why is God resting? Like, what in the world? Did he need to grab a beer, kick off his dirty shoes, and rest on the couch? Because he was tired. I don't think so. Right? God, was he hoarse from all of that talking and he just needed like to sip on some tea and take a break? No, like this is not obviously the point. The point in a rest is similar to a rest in music. Right? It's pronouncing something. It's calling your attention to something. Right? You're, the absence of noise right, creates a presence of rest. Okay? And, and God is pronouncing something by resting. And God, on the seventh day, is ordering time. Six days of ordering space, you have, right, land and sea, sky and earth, animals and birds. And then the seventh day, he orders time from the other six days. Six days rest, one day, or rest, <laughs> that sounds good, right? <laughs> Maybe, right? Maybe if you're retired. Um, six days of work, one day of Rest. He's ordering time. And notice this, too, that in this passage you get the very first mention of the Hebrew word kadosh, which is translated holy. Right? The idea of holiness starts here. Now, this is really interesting. Holy, of course, means devoted to God. Right? Oftentimes we think it just means separation from sin, but it's really, at its core, it's about being devoted and set apart for God. And so... He orders time and makes one moment in time holy, or a day in time holy. So he calls matter and the stuff he made good, but he makes time holy, set apart for God. And so every major religion on the planet has holy places, doesn't it? Right? So you go to Mecca and you make a pilgrimage to a holy place, or there's this, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, or wherever it is, is a whole, it's a holy place. But the Bible starts us off from the perspective that time is set apart for God first. Of course, you get to holy people and holy places. Exodus 19, God says you're a holy people. 
right? And then later in Exodus, I think, 34, you get the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell and he'll meet with them. This is a holy place for sure, but it's a traveling holy place because all of God's creation is his throne. So the first thing that is holy is time. This is fascinating to us. Now, I love what uh, Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel says about this in his book, The Sabbath. If you want to read a short and profound book on uh, kind of the Jewish idea of Sabbath, his work is par excellence. I love it. So take a look at what he says. Unlike the spatially minded man to whom time is unvaried, iterative, homogenous, to whom all hours are alike, the Bible senses the diversified character of time. There are no two hours alike. Every hour is unique and the only one given at the moment, exclusive and endlessly precious. He goes on. The Bible, Heschel says, teaches us to be attached to holiness in time. Jewish ritual may be characterized as the art of significant forms in time, as architecture in time. I love that. Most of its observances, the Sabbath, the new moon, the festivals, the sabbatical and jubilee year, depend on a certain hour of the day or season of the year. He says of the Jewish mindset that Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. Think about a cathedral. It's this holy place. You go for transcendent beauty to meet God. And he says, biblically, time is the great cathedral of meeting God. This is absolutely fascinating. So why all this stuff about time and being holy? What is going on here? Time is this medium through which God has chosen to commune with people. Time, ultimately what this is saying, time is not for our possession. We don't order it. God does. God orders time and sets it apart. And just like stuff is not ultimately ours, it's God, and we're called to steward it for his glory. Also, time is God's, and we are intended to use it for his glory. It is for work and worship. Time belongs to God. He set a rhythm for time. He assigns order to it and meaning to it. None of us can live apart from time. We can't get out of time. So how do we choose to live in time? And what you do with your time says the most about you, about what you love, what you value, what is your priority. Time reveals us. Right? When we say we don't have enough time, we are making a self-revealing statement. I say yes to everything. Right? I have no boundaries. Right? Because time reveals us for who we are. It says more about us than maybe anything else. And when we look at the resources we have, that is our stuff and our words and our time, the critical question always comes down to control, as in who calls the shots with your stuff? Who calls the shots with your words? Who calls the shots with your time? Who has ultimate ownership rights of the things that we're called to steward? In other words, the question is, who is God around here? Who's God around here? This is the critical question of worship. When we come in to worship, we're getting things straightened out. Who's God around here? Not me. Right? The God of Israel, the Holy One, we meet in Jesus. Okay, and so, from the very beginning of the story that God's telling, he reveals that he is, in fact, God over stuff and words and time. 
And as an observer of human behavior, particularly my own, I would confess to you that we typically reverse that order. We'd actually functionally say, I'm actually God around here when it comes to my stuff. After all, I earned it. Or my words. Or my time. It is my time. And so when we're not stressed, but we're actually kind of relaxed, the last thing we want is any more obligations. And so when somebody intrudes upon our time with an obligation, how do we react? It reveals who we think God is around here. Or when we are stressed, we're under great pressure, and somebody needs something from us that takes our time, how we react reveals who we think God is around here. Not to say that we don't have boundaries, we do. It's not a bad thing to rest, and it's not a bad thing to work. God says to do both. Some of us think that rest is a sin, right? And so you think, must produce all the time or else I'm not being a good steward with my time. But God says you're being a bad steward if you're not resting, too. And so both are critically important. And when these things, rest and work, become about ourselves, however, when we set the rhythm rather than God setting the rhythm, time becomes a means of control rather than a means of worship. And so if I think that my worth is in the things I produce and accomplish, I'm not going to rest so that I can control how I really feel about myself. Because I think that I determine my own worth. Do you understand how time actually becomes a means of control? Um, One example would be like, I love to wake up before my family wakes up, so that I can email, so that I can read, way before I have to spend the rest of my day meeting with people or creating or producing. So it's like my time. And as soon as I open my door, my son, who has amazing hearing now, is... Right there. Demanding completely legitimate things like oatmeal and snuggling and play. All completely legitimate. They all feel deeply unproductive, right? And so how do I respond? I can make, I can be a jerk and make him feel like junk for being what he needs to be, right? Or I can recognize that I'm not at the center of my time, that God is at the center of my time, and God has brought these people into my life who need things. Now, um, what happens for us when God does become the center of our time? How do we get there? Turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's right after Colossians. What happens to us when God becomes the center of our time for both work and rest? Now, this New Testament letter here um, to the Thessalonians is uh, by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a a church in the Greek region, um, in this Greek city of Thessalonica. It's an important city at the heart of the trade routes where the Roman Empire is, you know, has a strong presence. And so, you know, you've It's a strategic city for the gospel. And when Paul went there, there was a massive reaction to the gospel. On one hand, people received the word uh, deeply and authentically, and there was also great resistance, which is very typical of how God works. There's always resistance to the work of God. And this is the way their ministry was summed up by the people who came after Paul. They were mad at him. And they said, these men have turned the whole world upside down. They have come here. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. So they have these resources of time, words, and stuff, and 
man, they are, they are living with a completely different set of priorities. They are turning the world upside down. And they are saying that there's a different person who's actually God around here. It's not Caesar. It's not money, sex, power. It's Jesus. And they're living in this way. And so the gospel of God comes to us and it's ultimately a message about who God is and what God's done and that he's Lord and we're not, nor is anything else. And so this is what Paul says. He describes the way the gospel moves them and, and decenters themselves so that Christ becomes the center of themselves. Look what he says, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but excuse me, also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us in the Lord. And you received the words in much affliction and with joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need say nothing. For they themselves report concerning us your kind reception which we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, the gospel message needs a response. And this is the response. We turn toward God. That's holy, right? Devoted to you turn from idols, right? The idols that say you're actually in control. Right? And do we serve the living and true God? When we wait for the Savior Jesus, we have hope in what's to come. And this has to take place in order for us to leave the center of our time and for the Lord to take up residence in the center of our time. We have to embrace the gospel, and we do that by embracing Jesus as Lord, which means I'm not. So, what happens then when that conversion takes place? When we say, I'm not going to be God, God's going to be God, and I'm going to follow him as such, what does that look like? Take a look at chapter 2 and the interchange that happens between Paul and uh, the people there. Starting in verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, right, taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, that God, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. I love uh, the NIV says verse 8 a little bit differently. I think it reads a bit more naturally. We loved you so much that we were not, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We loved you so much. We were delighted not to just share a message, but ourselves, our lives as well. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of my life. He's Lord of my time. And therefore I'm delighted to share my time and my stuff and my, not just my words. 
This is a biblical example of generosity. See, uh, when we get on board with serving Jesus, something happens. And we become about Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes rather than just our own. And it changes our view of everything we have, including time. Now, Paul says he could have easily been a financial burden to them. He says, I could have come and I could have been, a, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm going to leave some, enough room in my schedule that I can actually have it pretty easy. right? And I can just talk to you about Jesus. But he says, you know what? I am going to work night and day so that way I can have the kind of relationship with you where I don't take anything. right? Where I, I support myself. And that, you know what? That takes time. And then I'm going to go be with you and talk to you about King Jesus. And you know what? That takes time. And I'm going to work hard so that I don't burden you at all. And he represents generosity with his resources, his, his time and his stuff and, and his words. He's generous with his time because he's not Lord of it. Jesus is Lord of it. And you have to ask the question, so then if he's so gen- generous with his time, what did he do in his time? He shared his life, not just a message, right? This is building relationships. And then he uses two metaphors. He was gentle like a mother, and he was also like a father, exhorting, encouraging, and uh, charging. I love this. So gentle like a mother, such an affirmation of moms. Like, okay, so is this on here? Did you guys fix the spelling? In the first service, it said Gentile like a mother. And it was, uh, I'm glad they fixed that. It's like all of you non-Jewish moms, you're killing it, doing a great job. All right, anyway, um, you know, you know, like you're kind of a Bible person when you start, okay, get, stop reading Paul. And, all right, here we go. Um, two metaphors. Like a mother, what does that mean? I'm taking care of you. Like I'm coming alongside you and I'm just, I'm taking care of you. I'm loving you and listening to you, hearing your soul. Like a father, I'm exhorting you, encouraging you, charging you, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. You can do it, go. Follow my example, right? And so we need both of these. What happens if you get exhortation without being taken care of? You become embittered, right? What happens if you get taken care of without exhortation? You become lax, right? And so Paul says, you need both. Now, moms and dads, how much time does it take to do that? This happens like on a drive-through schedule, right? You just knock it out overnight. No way, right? This takes a lifetime to care and exhort to be like a mom and to be like a dad. You know, this is a time-intensive ministry that Paul has with the Thessalonians. And this is something that he's saying, this is what it looks like when you are not at the center of your time, but Jesus is. You take care of people. You know anybody in your life that needs just some loving care? You've got needs? Like me? Somebody else want to come alongside me and care for me? Yeah, probably, right? Don't we need people who will listen to our hearts and care for us? Do you know anybody that needs some exhortation, encouragement, and a charge to walk worthy? Yeah. It takes time to do that. It takes a ton of time. And so, the pathway to share your life, not just the gospel, not just your stuff, not just your words, but your time, involves making room in your schedule for others to be like these kinds of things in relationship with them. Now, when we began this generous series a couple weeks ago, uh, there was somebody outside uh, the parking lot. The day we talked about generous with our stuff, there was somebody outside in the parking lot uh, asking for handouts or asking for money. They had a sign and everything. And I actually got an email the next day saying, was that a setup? Was that Dan Larson in disguise? I'm like, nope, I promise it wasn't. He was still on vacation. But 
<laughs> it really was not a setup. We're not that smart or manipulative. But, um, you know, the thing is, uh, a lot of you probably felt like, I gotta give them something. We just talked about generous with our stuff. And some of you did, right? And you're like, here you go. Like, we just had a sermon application. And you would be right. And that was great. Some of you drove faster. You're like, let's get out of here. You know, and that's totally understandable, isn't it? I got a call on Monday from a guy who had a different response. He drove up and he said, hey, um, I don't have a lot of money, but um, is there anything you need other than cash? The guy said, honestly, I'm not feeling very good and I'd, I would love to get transportation over to the Sunset Transit Center. So the guy says, come on in. Let's, I'll, I'll drive you over there. And on the way, he just told him a little bit about our church and said, you know, we have this, this thing on Tuesday night. It's a dinner. It's a com- dinner, free dinner for the community. It's called Jesus Table. And all kinds of people show up there, and it's just a great time to get to know other folks and, and get a free meal. So uh, it's like, oh, great, that sounds really cool. I'd like to go to that. And so what the guy did is he actually took it a step further and said, I will pick you up right here at the Sunset Transit Center next Tuesday at such and such time, and I will go with you, and I will eat dinner with you, and we can hang out. Now this is generosity with time. He had other things to do. That Sunday afternoon. He had other things to do that next Tuesday night. But he recognized something in this other person. And it was, it, it was that his greatest poverty wasn't material alone. Sure, it was material. But his greatest poverty was relational. And that kept him materially poor. That he needed community. That his greatest need was that he was alone in the world. Not that he didn't have anything in the world. And so he decided, I will give my time to walk with you from disconnection and isolation to community. And I recognize that it requires relationship to do that. And he was so excited. He called me that next week and was like, it was great. I loved it. I'm so excited that God's doing this in my life. Because this person had given his time to King Jesus. He was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. He was willing to do the will of the King. See, to be generous with our time does something radical. To be generous with our time subverts every temptation to think that we're more important than other people. Because where we live out what we think about ourselves is in the context of time. And when you have a discipline of being generous with your time, you're actually making a declaration to yourself every time you do it that I am not the most important thing around here. That it keeps us from the danger of thinking too highly of ourselves. To say, my stress is more important than your stress. Right? This is something I'm learning in my own home. Like, right? I, and, and I hope you're learning everywhere you go. That to be generous with your time, to be gracious with your time, is a way of saying, I'm not at the center of my time. God is. And in fact, since it's often not our inclination to be generous with our time, it actually requires some discipline. Right? It's, it means intentionality, not just spontaneity. And sometimes at, at church it might feel like, well, it shouldn't, but it does sometimes, it might feel like the church is just this empty void cost, constantly asking for money and time, right? Like just you are a, a resource and that's it. Or it can just feel like this great place, I'm encouraged, I can be a spiritual spectator, and it sends me home feeling full, but completely untapped. Now, neither one of these is really the way it's meant to work. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, you see a brilliant picture 
of something different altogether. The Paul says, he, was, he offers this picture of transparency. He was like, you knew us. You knew our motives. There was no pretext for greed, right? Like we went out of our way to make sure, like you knew we loved you, right? On the other hand, he says that you became imitators of us. Like you got in the game. You were willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. You got involved. And so the challenge for us is to see two things. That each one of us has kingdom work to do that requires a generosity of time. Also, each one of us is not meant to be taken advantage of. It requires boundaries with time. One of the great metaphors in the New Testament for the church is this idea of a family. All throughout the New Testament, you get this picture that the church is this family of God. And you know what happens in a family? Everybody's got to pull some weight, Right? So we have specialized jobs, right? I mow the lawn, my son doesn't. He follows me with his bubble lawnmower. He aspires to my job specialization. But I don't trust him with the lawnmower yet because he can't quite reach. Now, you know what my son can do? He tells me he can't do it, but I know he can. He can do what everybody else in the house does and takes responsibility for, and that is to keep the house clean. Like you can pick up your Legos. You are capable, right? And so what does he do? He carries his weight by helping clean up. And so every person in the family applies themselves, does kingdom work. And in the church, every person in the family applies themselves and they do kingdom work. And they say, not only am I going to, in my individual life, be spontaneously generous when I see a need with time, but also I'm going to plan to be generous with the family to carry the weight of ministry and children's ministry and hospitality at Jesus' table and his ministry and high school ministry and middle school. Or I'm going to stock pews. I'm going to do what it takes to help make Christ known for the church to be this place of warmth and welcome and engagement and mission and I will give my time for that. And that happens when we decenter ourselves from our time and say, Jesus is Lord of my time. And so I'm going to get involved. I'm not just going to be spontaneous like, like that great story of the guy who, who pulled over for the guy on the side of the street. But I'm also going to plan. I'm going to commit years of actually helping others know and walk with Jesus. Now, this is probably the moment in the sermon where you're feeling the demands of your schedule getting compounded by a message that's saying, be more generous with your time. Right? And you're like, you're either having like a moment of inspiration, you're like, yeah, I need to do that, or you're having a moment of desperation, and you're like, I need to get out of here. Or you're just having a moment maybe of just complete ignorance, like you're ignoring it, like, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, so forget this. Which, right? Okay. Now, let me suggest to you that, that none of those reactions are necessary, that there is something back at the very beginning of what I was saying to you that is incredibly relevant to generosity with our time. Right? And, and that is the assertion I made that all of us have a messed up relationship to time. And if we have a messed up relationship to time, we have to keep in mind that God orders time. And if your my, my relationship with time is messed up, that actually means that your relationship with God is messed up on some level. Okay? And so... Going back to understanding this, this, this summons of God to be generous with our time, we actually have to go back and ask the question, do I trust God to order my time? See, we began this morning with the biblical assertion that time is made holy first. That God orders time and he separates it between work and rest. I'm going to say this a couple times just to make sure we get this. 
the extent that you and I do not adequately rest in the way that God designs is the degree of difficulty with which we will have in being generous with our time. Let me say that again. The extent to which we don't adequately rest the way God designs is going to be the degree of difficulty with which we find it to be generous with our time. Because for most of us, if we're honest, our time is so overcrowded, our schedules are bursting at the seams, that there's really no margin left over. There isn't a leftover portion. And the person to blame most often is the person who committed themselves to the schedule. Who is that? Right? It's ourselves. And because we've said yes to everything that we can do without asking if it's something we should do. It's an opportunity. It's great. I've got to do it. It might not be a thing you've got to do. It might be, just be a thing you could do. And so we ask God for wisdom. Is it something I should do? And if it leaves us with no margin, no rest, then the answer is no. Right? And so our schedule fills up so much that there is no wiggle room. And, and so when the car breaks down, who else has a breakdown? Like we do. Right? And when the, when the kid comes to have that late night conversation... We're so preoccupied with what's next that we don't clue into how significant is right now. Or when the neighbor loses a job, we haven't got much sympathy because we've got our own time-oriented worries. We don't even stop to listen. And at the heart of ignoring God's rhythm for time is this sense that somehow we're ultimately in control. And the beautiful gift that God gives us in ordering time is this thing called Sabbath. Ever heard of that one? Which is not meant to be a law that binds us, but actually wisdom that frees us. To free us from the constant oppression of performing and producing and doing. And it frees us to the rest of just being. A Sabbath, when it's done right, is a reminder that God is at the helm of the universe. That he holds the universe together by the power of his word, not the work of our hands. And when you live in a rhythm of work and rest that God orders, you build in a regular reminder into your life that God is God and you're not. So to be generous with our time actually requires that we trust God with our time. And trusting God with our time means that we join him in his rhythm of time. And that means rest. So what does God do on the Sabbath? Three things. The three very important things. He does three things. He, he ceases from working, he blesses the day, and he makes it holy. Each one of those is a different thing. All right? And the new covenant in Christ takes away the legal requirement to keep Sabbath, but it elevates the wisdom and the importance of what the Sabbath was always meant to do. Remember, Jesus, not only did he say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, as in, I dig the Sabbath, I think it's a good idea, right? He's not Lord of something he's against. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's into this. He created it. But he also says Sabbath is created for mankind, for humanity, not the other way around. So there's an importance to it. And so you might not take a Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night, but if you want to experience margin, if you want to experience an ability to be generous with your time, then you're going to keep some Sabbath practices. So I hope you'll decide today to build in these three things into the rhythm of your week. The first thing is to cease from work. Is there a regular place where you 
unplug. For me, it means I don't check email and like I get time with just my family. Like, that is huge for me. And it's, maybe it's different for you. I understand that ceasing from work is different for different people. Some of you are really into gardening and you'd be like, hey Matt, I would love to come over and do yard work with you. And that is like ceasing from work for you and doing something recreative. For me, you're describing my hell. Right? <laughs> Literally. Like, not only is that work, it is, it is hellish. Right? So, if I said, hey, let's go read books, you might say, that sounds like a lot of work. Right? I'd say, no, that sounds really restful. Okay? So, cease from work where I don't have to be the producer and I don't have to perform, but I can focus on being. He, the second thing God does is he blesses the day. Which is really a way of saying he, he poured life into it. Blessing is about life-giving, fullness of life, right? And so it's, it's something that fills you up. Are you doing things in your time that like, bring life to you? They don't suck it out of you. They bring it to you in abundance. And so you, you, you do things that are life-giving. You know, one of the things that I, I can't imagine doing life without using the gift uh, that God has given for ministry and every single person in the church has been gifted by God to serve him and when you do it in a way that God's gifted you it energizes you right and so some of you you greet at the front door and it just energizes you because you want to make this place welcoming and others of you like that that would not fit the bill right you're like this, this is not energizing this is draining right? so we serve in our area of gifting and we play and recreate but not just that, he also made it holy. And, and to, to rest means to find our deepest satisfaction in God for who he is. And, and, and this means that Sabbath refocuses us. It's not just about play, it is about focusing on who God is in our lives and what he, what he has done. And it calls us to him and devotion to him. It is holy, set apart for God. There's a place for hearing him, stopping from everything else and saying... I need to recalibrate my whole life and priorities and values around who God is. I want to listen to Him in my life. If these three practices aren't happening, we're not doing Sabbath. We're not joining God in His rhythm of time. Some of you, maybe you're like, that's all I do. You've got work to do. So take pleasure in that too. Right? So it's a balance of rest. Not even a balance. It's lopsided. It's more work than rest. But the rest is really good and it's really important. If you're not building that into your time, the work just becomes monotonous. And you don't feel like you can be generous because you never feel like you're filled up. But when you build this practice into your time, it fills you because you do life-giving things. And it refocuses you because you trust God's work is sufficient to allow your work to cease. And so he orders our time and he calls us to be generous with it. But he gives us the gift of rest in order to create an ability to be generous but here's this last question. How do we find the desire and the power for this combination of work and rest in our lives? Where do we find the motivation? Otherwise, it's just this list, right? It's just a, hey, just make sure you have the right rhythm of time in your life. Be, gener- be more generous. It's be more and do more. But where's the internal drive? Where's the place where you really connect with God and it comes out of you? And it's not just something you have to do. The answer really lies in the very first Sabbath. Go back to Genesis and... There are six days and there's a pattern for each one. It says there's evening and there's morning. There's evening and morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. And then it breaks the pattern on the seventh day. 
There's no evening and morning on the Sabbath. What in the world is going on? See, the author of Genesis is doing something literarily to capture us theologically. He's saying there is another rest. God's rest doesn't end. Right? The true Sabbath is ongoing. Right? That the other days have a beginning and an end, but the rest of God goes on forever. And so there's a rest for our souls. That there's a Sabbath behind the Sabbath. There's a deeper rest for our souls than just a rest for our schedules. Yes, rest in your schedule. But that's meaningless until you've found rest for your soul. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3, 19 says about this generation of Israelites who were supposed to go into the land to take possession of God's promise. They didn't do it because they didn't believe God. They didn't enter His rest. They rejected His rest through unbelief because they didn't trust God. And therefore, he goes on and says that entering God's real rest is fundamentally about trusting in Him, taking Him at His word. The author of Hebrews says that the rest of God that never ended. It still stands and it must still be entered. So he says this in Hebrews 4.11. Therefore, or let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is unbelief. For the word of God, he says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give account. And going back to Tolkien, you might read that and go, this is kind of an image of like Sauron, this great eye that sees everything. That's the wrong image. You know what the image is here? It comes from the word exposed. Paul says, look, the word of God exposes us. You know what that word means? It's a picture what happens when you go to sacrifice a goat at temple? Lift up its neck and expose it. A knife is ready to cut the sacrifice. So he says God's word exposes us. The word of God is like this knife at our throat. Why? Because what is exposed in us isn't pretty. What's exposed in us is us saying, I'm God of time and stuff and everything. It's idolatry and rebellion, selfishness, and, and it calls us to account. That's why the word is so powerful. But the rest of God, the rest of God is knowing our exposure on one hand and also seeing the Lord of Sabbath on the other. I've seen Jesus here in the next verse. Look at verse 14 with me. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is tempted, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So what we have in Jesus is the one who is both priest holding the knife and the sacrifice who said, I'll take it on your behalf. That's what we have in Jesus. He's both the priest and the sacrifice and he's taken our place and his attitude is one of mercy and grace that says, 
I care and I help. And his attitude is one of sympathy. He says, I get it. I get what it's like to be under the pressures of time, under the pressures of, uh, of human existence. I know the temptation of evil and I've experienced it to the max, but I want to help. And so rest for our souls is confidence that what we have before God or that we are, uh, that we have before God the Son of God who has come between us and said, I will be the sacrifice. Rest is confidence in God that we can come before Him through the Son and we rest in the sufficiency of what, the, what Christ has done in His sacrifice, His death on the cross, knowing instead of getting death, I get life. Knowing that instead of getting cut at the throat, I'm cut at the heart. Why? Because of the mercy and love of God who for the joy set before Him endured the cross for me. And when you rest in Jesus, when you rest for your soul, your, your soul rests in Jesus' finished priestly work to cleanse our sin, you become empowered. You become motivated. Right? You can stop working because he's done enough work to make you okay. And you can give generously with your time because your time's not yours. You can partner with God in doing kingdom things. You can work hard, but not to earn favor or not to validate yourself, but to partner with the God who loves you and gave himself up for you. Resting in Christ makes us truly able to be generous as well as to rest. And until you see that, you won't have the resources to, and the boldness to give your time away. And until you see that, you won't have uh, the, the freedom to cease from work and to enjoy the work God has done for you until you see Jesus for who he is and embrace him for who he is. I hope you'll find rest today for your souls in Jesus because that unlocks everything else to be able to rest in our schedule as well as to give our time away. Will you allow him to make you generous because he's given you an abundance of life through his life? Let's pray and take communion. Lord, we thank you that this bread and this cup reminds us, not just reminds us, it is it is a summons to a relationship. It tells us that you have become present to us. That you've taken on our humanity, our pressure, our sin, our failing, and you've absorbed it into yourself so that we can become whole and healed, so that we can become holy, so that we can be generous people with our time and our words and our stuff. And we ask you to empower us to live a life of radical generosity that flows from the generous love of God that you have sent to us in Jesus, your Son. We thank you for our high priest and our sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.